Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. We're still talking about Oscar nominees in the technical categories. Today, we're going to discuss original song and original score. Please remember there's always a chance of spoilers going forward. Let me introduce my guests. Mick Coogan, you're an L.A.-based composer and the singer and lead songwriter for the band Brett. Mick, welcome to Below the Line. Hey, what's up? Glad to be here. Glad to have you, Mick. Next, Louis Weeks, also L.A.-based. You're a score composer with a bunch of film credits, and you wrote the score for NPR's Up First. Welcome. Yep. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. And then finally, in our fourth chair is chart analyst and pop critic Chris Malamphy, host of the Slate podcast Hit Parade. Welcome to Below the Line. Thanks so much, Skid. All right, folks. Well, let's get right into this. We'll start with original song. I'll read out the nominee and who's credited with the music and lyric. And then we'll play a little bit, and you guys can let me know what you thought. First up, I Can't Let You Throw Yourself Away from Toy Story 4. It's music and lyric by Randy Newman. So when you hear this song, what do you think of as musical folks? It sounds like Randy doing Randy to me. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like I mean, chicken, chicken noodle soup for the soul. Sounds like comfort food. Do you think a nomination like this carries largely on uh, nostalgia? Or do you think there's more to it or there's some aspect to it that uh, you think actually honestly helps it stand apart from other uh, movie songs this year? Either nostalgia or affection. I mean, Randy Newman is rightfully a rock legend, you know, rock hall of famer. Famously, I actually rewatched this today. He finally won after being nominated something like 15 times in um, 2002 for the 2001 Oscar year for the song from Monsters, Inc. I think it's like, If I Didn't Love You or something like that. I forget the name of it. The, frankly, the, the titles are all rather generic. If I Didn't Have You. And um, he gave one of the funniest speeches in Oscar history. He got up to the mic and said, uh, I don't want your pity, which everybody up laughed uproariously because he was, he was basically building a Susan Lucci-sized losing streak, and then he finally won. And since then, he's won, I think, a couple of these. I think he won again for Toy Story 3. But in all cases, these songs, to me, are all variations on the... Not the Randy Newman persona, speaking as a critic, and basically the Pixar persona he built with You've Got a Friend in Me from the original Toy Story in 1995. I feel like most of the songs he's done for Pixar, with one exception I'll mention, really are just kind of rewrites of that kind of slap-happy Randy Newman vibe. I would say the one exception, I think it's the best thing he's ever written, at least for a movie, is uh, When She Loved Me from Toy Story 2 that gorgeous ballad sung by Sarah McLaughlin in the movie, which he wrote and doesn't sound like a Randy Newman song at all. And that's gorgeous. And it didn't win. And it should have, in my humble opinion, but mostly Randy Newman does Randy Newman. And this is just another one of those to me. Mick, that seems to align pretty closely on what you had said as well. Yeah. Um, I really think it's a great song. Uh, this is Toy Story 4. Um, we've heard a lot of Randy Newman material at this point. It feels very comfortable and for the millions of Toy Story fans, uh, I, I don't know why you would rock the boat. And so this feels good. I'm not sure what would catapult it 
past other Randy other Randy Newman songs, but I think it sounds cool. I think it's the title for me as a songwriter seems a little convoluted to be something that is a timeless thing, but I think it's a I think it's a cool song though. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think uh, th- what's interesting to me about Randy Newman's scoring work and his song work in films is kind of what's interesting to me about John Williams's work. D- he's very much a gatekeeper for a legacy sound, um, kind of rooted in the American songbook. And, and I think it's, while it does feel very much like Randy Newman doing Randy Newman, I feel like it's a special thing because nobody else can or does do this uh and and it certainly sounds dated because it's rooted back like a century um and to me movies are an interesting way to to view pop music because you can have things like strauss or wagner in a star wars movie and and people are like oh yeah too cool totally um, whereas in popular culture, most people aren't really talking about Strauss and, and the same with Randy Newman. People aren't really talking about the classic American songbook in pop culture. But when you listen to it through the, through the lens of a toy story song, you hear that harmony and those chords. It's like, yeah, cool. Totally. I get it. I think, I think that's a kind of an interesting time capsule. Well, let's see who he's up against this year. Next on the list is I'm going to love me again from rocket man music by Elton John lyric by Bernie Talpin. Probably the most useful piece of trivia to share about this one is that this won the Golden Globe a couple of weeks ago in a slight upset. I don't know if I'd call it an upset. I think it might have been a favorite, particularly with the Hollywood foreign press. Um, I think it's now regarded as the favorite to win the Oscar as well. One way that Elton John sort of secured his place in the minds of Oscar voters when he accepted the Golden Globe was he noted, and this is going to sound utterly improbable, but this is the sort of chart trivia that I love, uh, music trivia that I love. This was the first time he and Bernie Taupin had ever won an award together, which is nuts. Bernie Taupin, for those who don't recall, Elton John has a very unusual songwriting style. Most of his hits, the lyrics were written as standalone lyrics by Bernie Taupin and then handed to Elton John, who then crafts music around them. That's a very unusual way to write songs. Very few major hit songwriters work that way. But Bernie Taupin and Elton John wrote the overwhelming bulk of those massive 70s and 80s hits that people know. Less so in the 80s, certainly all of the 70s. The quirk is that when Elton John started winning things, including Grammys and Oscars. He and Bernie, they weren't broken up exactly, but they were on a break from each other. For example, when he won the Oscar for The Lion King, he was working with Tim Rice, you know, former collaborator of Andrew Lloyd Webber. So basically, he's never won, prior to the Golden Globe, he never won a, a prize of any kind, a major prize of any kind with Bernie Taupin. And so for sentimental reasons alone, there's an excellent chance that this is going to win. What's funny about it to me is that a lot of Elton John's music is pastiche. Think about songs like Crocodile Rock. Think about, think about songs like Benny and the Jets, where he's imitating other styles. He's imitating glam rock in the case of Benny and the Jets. He's imitating 50s doo-wop in the case of Crocodile Rock. This song, 
is not super Elton John-ish, it, only in the sense that, yes, it's got piano, but it frankly sounds like a Northern Soul song of the 60s. It doesn't sound like a peak Elton John song of the 70s to me. So if it won, it would be Elton John winning with a song that isn't especially Elton John-like, but then again, you could argue that nothing is especially Elton John-like as Elton John kind of does it all. So yeah, that's what I find interesting about this one. Song folks, what did you guys think of this one? It was a really cool song. Yeah, it feels like a 60s soul uh, soul song. The, chord, the, the key change is exciting. I feel like that, like uh, I'm Gonna Love Me Again is a very contemporary idea. Um, I don't think that would be a concept that would be familiar with audiences in the 60s or the 70s. But that feels like it could be a song on the uh, title on a Lizzo album, and uh, maybe it's timely for for the the audiences right now. I mean, I think Benny and the Jets and Rocket Man and those are coming from such a different lyrical world, um, and this one feels very contemporary. So, and and I didn't know that this, that these that these guys haven't been working for a while, and they just got back in together whenever this song was written. And uh, it's nice that they, they get a nod because all those great 60s and 70s songs were just insane. And one of my favorite bands, The Grateful Dead, did that as well. They had a songwriter write poetry and then the band would take it and uh, create music over it. So there's some, it's rare, but it, it did, it would be that. That's a really good point. You're talking about Ian Hunter, I assume. Yeah, yeah. Um, Robert, Hunt, Ra- Robert Hunter. Robert Hunter, my apologies. For a lot Thank of those, you. I mean, The Dead never had songs as big as uh elton john but robert hunter would have a lot of poetry and jerry garcia would then write the music to it and pretty cool you know i think this song is uh it's it's like it works successfully as a pop song as an elton john song one of the things i'm i think about when i think about awards and what merits a win versus what doesn't especially in the context of a movie is i'm wondering uh if to the audiences the conceit of it being a biopic helps the case. If people in their minds know mm-hmm. this is a song, it was written by an artist I know, it this, it's the story of the artist that I know. I wonder if that inherently helps it in the minds of voters as opposed mm-hmm. to a, a song from uh, a, a fictional conceit where th- there isn't that uh, meta layer of, of cultural understanding. I don't have any an answer for that. I'm I'm just wondering if in the minds of audiences, biopics, musical biopics have a better shot at winning a, a best song. I'm trying to think back into the history of that because I mean there have been lots of musical biopics, but there wasn't a new Queen song in Bohemian Rhapsody. There wasn't a new Johnny Cash song in Walk the Line. There wasn't a new Ray Charles song in Ray. So I'm not sure we have enough of a backstory here. I suppose maybe I need to double check this. I think. The Rose by Bette Midler won for that movie, which is effectively a biopic. It's basically a thinly veiled Janis Joplin biopic, even though it's not really Janis Joplin. So, it, but I think you're right. This is a very long way of saying I actually think you may have a point. I'm not sure we have, <laughs> uh, we have enough of a history to prove this categorically, but right, right. I think you're right that the metal layer really does speak well for this. Yeah. Well, our next entry for original song is I'm Standing With You from the movie Breakthrough, Music and Lyric by Diane Warren. And when you think that all the odds are all against you, and you just feel 
song is from a film that I think had a much more limited release, a uh, Christian film about a guy trapped under the ice. And uh, I, don't, I had never seen the film. Of course, in judging the song, perhaps that's not as relevant. What did you guys think? The most important detail about this song is the fact that it was written by Diane Warren. So when I was speaking about Susan Lucci-like losing streaks, she's basically got the big one in this category right now. She's been nominated for this award 11 times, which by the way, in the music industry, which I normally follow, is kind of, I don't know if hilarious is the right word, ironic, strange. Diane Warren is a massive hit maker. Diane Warren has a ton of number one hits. She's been writing hits since the 80s, dating all the way back to Rhythm of the Night by DuBarge through, oh gosh, um, Unbreak My Heart for Tony Braxton, Because You Loved Me for Celine Dion, including, by the way, speaking of Because You Loved Me by Celine Dion, several songs for movies. And she's been nominated, I believe it's now 11 times. And none of them have won, including ones where she was heavily favored to win and somehow didn't take the prize. So she's got a bit of a Randy Newman thing going on right now. I think it's a fine song. One other point of affection in its favor is it's uh, sung by Chrissy Metz, who uh, is also on the NBC, the hit NBC show, This Is Us. And she, I actually think she brings a lot of soul to the performance, so that helps. Uh, but yeah, the movie had fairly limited release Christian films like um, that movie actually quietly do very well and are quite profitable. I think that movie did well for what it was, but um, it's certainly not as starry as some of the other movies in the category. So I'd be surprised if this was the, the song that broke Diane Warren's losing streak, but I suppose anything's possible. With a, with a writer of this caliber, um, she can do a song like this a day. She's been, she's, she's so good. I mean, when I'm listening to this musically, I write pop songs in this vein every day. Melodically, everything happens. It's like everything um, is just perfectly weighted in terms of the melody of things and, and where the payoff is. Uh, I feel like lyrically, um, it doesn't really grab me. I, it's like, it's just there there aren't any words there aren't any moments lyrically that can separate the experience it feels like um vague in its emotional reach however i i would love like i i hear an obvious it could be like a song for adele i feel like um that melodically it's like absolutely awesome and amazing uh lyrically it feels a little thin to me but at the same time I'm not sure it's Diane Warren. I, I saw, I checked her wiki earlier and she's written so many great songs and, didn't, and has so many nominations. I'm just now just looking at the near, uh, the heart, my heart will go on lyrics. And those aren't like extremely specific in any moment. What I just feel like my heart will go on. That's kind of a quirky phrase. And I'm standing with you maybe is less quirky. Both are melodically superior. Who knows? Something like that. But yeah, I think it sounds great. Mick has accidentally articulated 
my critique of Diane Warren when he said that the lyrics seem a little vague. I find, frankly, that the woman can write amazing melodies in her sleep, like her melodies are sturdy and just insanely well-structured, but her lyrics, frankly, often read like Hallmark cards <laughs> to me. That's always been my thing with Diane Warren. I'm not an enormous fan. I'm, I'm very selective with the pop songs by her that I like, but you can't deny the fact that nothing's going to stop us now by Starship or just these songs she's written of How Do I Live from Con Air to Leanne Rimes did. Like she's written these songs that have endured and endured and endured. So yeah, anyway, I just wanted to interject that. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, but just melodically stadium level melody game. Just amazing. Well, let's talk about our next song in the category, Into the Unknown. This is from Frozen 2. Music and lyric by Kristen Anderson Lopez and Robert Lopez. I am afraid of what I'm risking if I follow you into the end. Bobby Lopez is the first double EGOT winner in history. I believe he remains the only double EGOT winner. He's won two each of those four prizes. The guy is ridiculously talented. And his wife has won several of those prizes with him. They're an amazing songwriting team. They've won this Oscar twice this decade. They won it for, no shock, Let It Go from Frozen 1. And they won it again in a slight upset that year, because I think something else was favored that year for the song from Coco, Remember Me. Uh, I remember being particularly impressed by that song because in that movie, Remember Me has to be sung in something like three or four different idioms, up-tempo, down-tempo, and it was this song that worked any which way it was sung. Um, This one is, again, another sort of impressive piece of songwriting by them. Um, That four-note motif comes from a Latin hymn uh, that I'm going to mispronounce. It's something like Dais Iri that... Uh, is sung in kind of a Scandinavian motif in the movie Frozen 2, and they managed to work it into the song, which is sort of impressive, just at a sort of songwriting level. Now, having said all that, this song is not uh, Let It Go. Um, normally, you would, get, you would treat the Lopez's as the heavy favorite for this award, but this year, especially against the Elton John song, I don't think they are quite as favored as they normally would be. If anybody's going to upset Elton, and Elton John and Bernie Taupin, I suspect it might be this song, but there are also a couple other candidates, including one nominee that we haven't talked about yet. So I don't think this song is a front runner to win. And given that they've run the, excuse me, won this award twice this decade already, it might be a situation of they've already had that box checked. So we'll see what happens. I have a six-year-old niece. She's seen Frozen 2 three times in the movies. I hear this song and it, it is like, Speaking to children and the vocal tones and melodically uh, feels kind of familiar and playful. I just, I just feel like Let It Go. I've never seen Frozen 1. Let It Go just is, you know, one of those all-timers. And I think the word unknown, like as the belt word, like as your home run, like Celine Dion chest thump moment, is like little kids. I don't know if that's like... I just don't know if that's the word, from my opinion. I think, let it go, let it go. Like, that is, like, so universal for so many different emotions. And even little kids can understand let it go. I think into the unknown is a compli- more complicated idea. And 
if I was these totally two agree. writers and they they want on Let It Go and they have another big melody with with the O sound into the unknown, like play the game, man. Um, <laughs> good, you know, it's it's an awesome song. Uh, but hey. no, what one thing that uh, song in this type of movie has to do is it has to do, I think, a little bit more heavy lifting structurally because it is uh, a musical. And there's kind of formal things and craft things that are happening here that are, are very different from a, like an Elton John pop song. And, and I think that that's worth saying, but if it doesn't work as a pop song, it, that's, I, I, I think it does. I think it's a good pop song, but I think it, it has to carry two uh, major weights here. One, it has to work, it has to speak to everyone in, on a pop level, but it also has to hit the picture and hit the different forms and hit, it, it, it's, it's working like a piece of musical theater. And, and I think that that's fundamentally a, a different thing than the other songs that we've heard so far. I agree. This feels more like a Broadway, a Broadway song that is probably more in tune with what's happening. You guys might know a little better what's happening on the screen, maybe written to more of the moments on the screen. Um, where these other ones are standalone that somehow connect to the spirit of the movie. Right. Well, they also have a, the, these types of songs have a, have a plot furtherance. Th their job is to convey an emotion, but also to uh, kind of tell you more about what characters want. And in that sense, it's really part of the script uh, in a way that other songs kind of work, could work over a motif uh, sorry, mm -hmm. a, a montage, or they yeah. could work over some sort of slow motion sequence, or they're kind of extra filmic in that sense, whereas uh, pieces of musical theater, they, they're so tightly interwoven with the plot and with mm -hmm. the script and with the character development mm -hmm. that it's, it, to me, it's a different beast altogether. If I may flog my podcast for a moment, I did an episode of my Hit Parade podcast last year about the history of the Broadway musical on the charts. Uh, Broadway music was, was chart music in the 50s through about the mid-60s. And Louis' point is a very, very good one in the sense that the so-called integrated musical, which was basically invented around the 30s, 40s, uh, you know, showboat in Oklahoma, it's doing something completely different. And frankly, that style of songwriting has gone in and out of favor as I talked about in the, in the podcast episode, there was a period where everybody believed that nobody wanted to hear anybody breaking the song anymore. And so in the 80s, even though you had these blockbuster Broadway musicals like Cats and Phantom of the Opera, they weren't scoring hits on the charts anymore. But then Disney kind of brought it all back. You know, basically, what are those, those movies of the 90s? Like Aladdin and The Little Mermaid and The Lion King, but musicals. They're, and they, they were even written by Broadway composers. And that's what the Lopez's are doing with these songs from Frozen and Coco. They're effectively Broadway songs. They're integrated musical songs. And, you know, again, they've won this award twice this decade. There's no reason they couldn't do it a third time. It's just the competition is a little different this year. So, Well, let's turn our attention to the last song on the list, Stand Up from Harriet, music and lyric by Joshua Brian Campbell and Cynthia Erivo. I do what I can when I can while I can for my people. While the clouds roll back and the stars fill the night, that's when I'm gonna stand up, take my people Across the 
That song is definitely in my wheelhouse of the ones we've heard today. Like that, I just actually really like. But tell me a little about what your thoughts are about what's going on there. At the metal level, Cynthia Erivo is an interesting nominee. She is a singer. She has won on Broadway. Uh, I mentioned the phrase EGOT earlier. She is one award away, the Oscar, from an EGOT. Uh, that's been heavily hyped. Um, there's yet another metal level at which this nomination is interesting, which is that she is the only actor of color to appear in any of the four uh, acting categories this year. And basically she single-handedly saved uh, the Academy Awards from being an Oscar so white year again. For all these reasons, even taking out the fact that I agree with you, uh, Skid, the song's excellent. I like it. If, if there's an upset for Elton John and Bernie Taupin in this category, I think the Cynthia Erivo song is it. She would actually win because, by the way, the best song goes to the songwriters. So, you know, for example, in a year when Madonna wins for the song from Evita, You Must Love Me, that actually went to Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice. It didn't go to Madonna. But this is a case where Cynthia Erivo gets co-writing credit on the song. So she would actually win an Oscar for this. For that reason alone, especially since she's not favored to win the Best Actress Oscar, I can totally see a scenario where Cynthia Erivo takes this prize and it doesn't hurt the songs actually very, very good. And finally, the only other thing I'll say is that um, the Oscars have an interesting history with um, hip hop. This is not a rap song by any means, but it's got some vague sort of allusions to hip hop in its production. The song I'd compare it to most closely is a song that actually won this decade from um, the movie Selma called Glory, which was itself a duet between John Legend, the R&B singer, and uh, Common, the rapper. This song has very similar bones in terms of the way it's structured. And uh, hip-hop songs have actually won at the Oscars. Uh, Lose Yourself by Eminem from 8 Mile, one in the early aughts. And uh, It's Hard Out Here for a Pimp uh, by 3-6 Mafia from Hustle and Flow, one in the mid-aughts. So it's not unprecedented that a song in this wheelhouse could win. So for all those reasons, I, you know, it's probably Elton John if I were a betting man, but this, this could totally take it. Yeah, I think this song rules. Totally rules amazing composition the energy the vocal performance is for me by far the best of uh, any of the other records um there is there is tremendous range in the melody there are different moments of the song there's just so many smart things uh the, the pre-chorus is just this quick little turnaround into this really driving chorus that really lifts you up melodically and then there's that great low note bones on that word that just feels that's just a real gut punch i think it's masterful songwriting this is for me by far the most interesting and best of the bunch but i'm listening as a pop music listener and i haven't seen the movie so uh but i do think it's a great song and i enjoy it and i hope she wins she would be very deserving yeah i agree i think this is if if we're talking about what's the best song I think this is the best song. Uh, but I guess the question is all the, uh, the extra things we've been talking about, like about how it fits into the, the, the movie. The thing that I love about this track is, is the performances and the harmony and the production all come together. Like they're all, they're all uh, hitting it at, at 10. Like they're all, they're all at the, at the top. And I think that's what contemporary audiences expect that everything has to be everything has to be the best it can possibly be the performance uh the harmony has to feel inevitable and really really correct 
emotionally. And then the production value uh, of all the songs that we're hearing on this, in, in this category, this is the one that has the most interesting and, and uh, identifiable to today's audience production techniques. And so I think people will hear it and think, oh, uh, th this is deeply, um, this is like, this is a deeply great, well done song because it is, but I, th I think that the production value is, is, is categorically different from the other songs that, that are in this category. And I think that, 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 that makes a big difference. Well, those are our five songs that have been nominated. We'll see which way it goes not long from now, but in the meantime, are there songs from the movies that you noticed this year that did not make the list that you think perhaps should have been recognized? The big upset that everybody was talking about the morning the nominations came out was Beyonce. Uh, for The Lion King, and uh, now I'm blanking on the name of the song, so forgive me, I'm going to have to look it up. And um, the song from Beyonce was called Spirit. It was heavily favored to be nominated and possibly even win. Beyonce has an odd relationship with the Oscars in that uh, a song she recorded for the soundtrack to Dreamgirls, when that became a musical in the mid-aughts, um, I think it was called Listen, did not get nominated. So she has never been nominated for an Oscar and everybody thought this was going to be the year and then she didn't get nominated. Um, I thought Spirit was good. Um, it's not, you know, a super exceptional Beyonce song. Uh, I can name 20 Beyonce songs I like better than Spirit, but I thought it was very, very good. So I guess if there was any that I was a little surprised didn't get nominated, that's the one. But um, And then, of course, the other one we can talk about is the Taylor Swift song from Cats. Uh, but Cats became such a punchline by the end of 2019 that in a way that was less surprising. Uh, in fact, I should mention, if I'm correct, that um, it was eliminated by the music branch of the Academy. Uh, so it wasn't even on the short list. So uh, there was no suspense over whether uh, Taylor Swift's song from Cats was going to get nominated. It, it stood no chance once they eliminated it from the short list. So that, that's the only other one by a major st pop star that uh, got blanked this year. You guys know if the, um, the tune from the, I'm just checking out, the Spider-Man from Far From Home or the oh, Into the Spider-Verse. Is that this year? Into the Spider-Verse was 2018. Uh, and the song from that was Sunflower. Yeah. I don't know that it got... Hang on a sec. That was, you know, Post Malone and um, Sway Post Leaf. Sway, yeah. yeah. That's, and, yeah, it's a good song. And no, it was not nominated, which is a little funny. Because that song, speaking about what Louis keeps bringing up, that absolutely moved the plot along and into the Spider-Verse. But yeah, that would have been uh, a nominee last year. Just, yeah, I was just curious if, if that song, based on the criteria that we're developing here, if that song even was nominated because that was a cultural mega song. And totally. An awesome tune. Yep. And, it, and I didn't know that it, that it did play a big role in the, in the movie. So just, just wondering. It literally keeps recurring during the plot of the movie. I was surprised when I finally saw that movie. I was like, wow, this is not incidental. It's not a, an end credit song, Sunflower. It, it like the, the kid, you know, who's the center of the plot of Into the Spider-Verse, he keeps playing the song in the movie and singing along with it. It's, it's important to, the, to the, the thrust of the movie. It's interesting. You know, talking about the Taylor Swift and she wrote, co-wrote it with Andrew Lloyd Webber himself for Cats. Did you guys hear the song itself? Did you? Th the movie was bad. I uh, I did <laughs> see it, and and I do think that the 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 stink of the movie, quite frankly, could eliminate even other aspects of it uh, getting any attention. But the song itself, I it didn't jump out at me as being horrible as the rest of the movie. But it also seemed a little 
misplaced in the film itself. But did you guys hear the song? Did you have thoughts about it? Whether it should have done better? I didn't find it tremendously memorable myself. But then again, I, I am a fan of Taylor Swift and I do think she's an exceptional songwriter. It might have just been an odd fit putting her together with Andrew Lloyd Webber, though she's very adaptable. I don't, I've liked work by both of them and I didn't think this was either of their best work. I didn't think it was terrible. I thought it was fine. But uh, I heard it once and I didn't think much about it ever again. One thing that I, there was a, a story that came out this year about a remarkable song, but the story was even more remarkable. And I was shocked that around Oscars time, we didn't hear more about it. There's a movie called Wild Rose. It came out in 2019. And there's a song on it called Glasgow. Yes. And it was written by Oscar-winning actress Mary Steenburgen. Steenburgen. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of years ago, she went in for a routine surgery, went under anesthesia, and came out, and her brain had completely changed she said she started to have a kind of musical experience about everything. I'm looking at this IndieWire article, and she said, quote, I felt strange as soon as the anesthesia started to wear off. The best way I could describe it is that it just felt like my brain was only music, and everything anybody said to me became musical. All of my thoughts became musical. Every street sign became musical. I couldn't get my mind into any other mode. So she kind of stopped doing what she was doing. She started songwriting. And this song that she wrote found its way into this movie. And it's a, it's a phenomenal song. And, but the story behind it is even more remarkable. And it's, it's a household name that everyone in the movie industry knows. And so I, I was shocked that we didn't hear more about this uh, around Oscars time. I heard the same story. I was fascinated by it. Um, I was remiss in not mentioning that when I was talking about Beyonce among surprise upsets because there was some buzz that Mary Steenburgen was going to get nominated for that song and folks were a little disappointed. The simple Occam's Razor explanation is that Wild Rose was just not a very big movie and that may have been why it didn't get the nomination but I, sure. I, I, too, sure. thought, I too thought it was an excellent song and, uh, and you're right that the backstory of Mary Steenburgen becoming That's a songwriter in her 50s I think It's incredible uh, It's incredible It's oh, incredible cool. Well it's interesting if you're on the short list for songs typically you would think that everybody who is voting on the final nominations is going to be able to hear them all. It's a little different when we talk about score, and I'll change that now because score, by definition, is running throughout the movie, and so there's much more of a really a body of work that you're trying to evaluate. Uh, let's turn our attention that way, and I'll name the nominees. First up for Joker is Hildur Gunadotter. I thought this the music in the score was pretty remarkable. She won recently the Golden Globe for her work on this film. As pieces of music, I was blown away. This is personally, this is like exactly the type of music that I I love, uh, and I was I'm always really excited to see music that's this textural and abstract in its own way play such a major part in uh, a very popular. Uh, film. What's interesting to me about it is that the way that it was used in the movie, there are so many 
slow motion montages in Joker. So many um, kind of assembly cuts, like just things that really uh, are, are more, less about what's happening in the moment on screen and, and more of a summation of a feeling or a story that to me, the, the music helped make that all feel correct and right. Um, it's fundamentally different to me than like a John Williams score, which is using music to impress upon you that you are in the moment now and the action is happening to you now. And the music is, is tying that all together. These slow motion montages that are in Joker uh, gave it a sense of kind of like it, it's already happened to me. There's something feels kind of uh, like it's recapping or there's a kind of extra, extra story element that's uh, knitting it together. And so in that sense, I, I felt like the music, um, it acted a little more on the side of soundtrack than it did score because it, it could have, it felt like it was a licensed track that was placed to the slow motion, to these slow motion montages. That being said, there are some moments that are scored very nicely, but um, overall, I think that it's super strong music written from a very unique perspective and using a lot of uh, interesting techniques that you don't hear a lot in, in movies, certainly not, you know, superhero movies. What I've heard about this is that actually the score was written before they did the filming right, largely right. and used and played on set largely to inspire or inform or otherwise provide additional motivation to what was actually filmed, which the typical process, I believe, is that the score is done when the film is complete or close to complete. It's usually a post-production operation. You're right. But in, in this case, the, because the music was so... Uh, that's another... That's a good point you bring up. It, it, there's kind of an, an internality to it. All the music feels like you're expressing the internalization of the characters rather than a traditional score, which feels more external to me. You're scoring the explosions or the gunshots or the car chase. This movie was, the music kind of made it feel very internal. And so scoring it beforehand and letting the actors perform off of it makes sense. This was my favorite thing about Joker, a movie I'll confess I did not care for. <laughs> I, I agree. Um, and this was far and away the most effective thing in it. I would, I am kind of rooting against Joker in most of the Oscars. By the way, it's got the most Oscar nominations, 11 not Oscar nominations. This is the one, if it won, I would be actually happy for the composer because I, thought, I think the music, to Louis' point, is exceptional. The fact that it predated the filming of the movie, I find both... Uh, I don't know, appropriate and maybe ironic, uh, given what I thought of the film. Uh, but um, I do think it is used effectively in the movie when it is used. A lot of the movie is, and I'm the last person to cast aspersions at this because I love music videos being the pop chart fan that I am. But uh, a lot of it looked like a music video in terms of you know the way things like uh, Rock and Roll Part Two by Gary Glitter was used or all the Frank Sinatra needle drops that were used in that movie. But anytime that score appeared, suddenly it became a you know, far better movie to me. So I don't know, take that for what it's worth, but it was the thing I liked best in Joker. So next up on our score list is Little Women by Alexander Desplat.
I thought this was a delightful film. I had never seen, never read the book when I was a kid. And we went over the holidays and I refreshed. I listened to a, a couple of pieces on YouTube. And it is just a film that is full of life. I mean, the, the ability of the director, Gerwig, to bring these young superstars. I mean, it is just like rock and roll overdrive ass kicking movie just because of the charisma of all the people on the screen and the score I felt was light fast paced it never got in the way there was just I remember this moment um, they were dancing outside of the like the ball and there was this great energetic music playing that really enhanced the moment I feel like it was entirely appropriate I feel like there's like not a lot of bandwidth for a score in a movie like this because it is the shots are so close the sets are so small for the most part that it's probably not shouldn't be all up in your face and um i think it complemented the film great yeah i think i think gerwig just like a masterful art piece congratulations to all involved you know. here here on all all counts yeah totally the thing to me about the score is that with a Displas score, I think he's a fantastic filmmaker. And so with Gerwig being the fantastic filmmaker that she is, and then also having the composer be themselves a, a, such a talented filmmaker. And I say that because every film that he does feels different, but he has some, some very um, central core tenets that make a Displas score a Displas score. And that to me j just means that everyone involved in this understood what they were making together. And, and that has to come from the lead, like leadership. I mean, that's, that's the director's vision, right? Uh, but to me, what makes a Desplat score a Desplat score is that 98% of the score is in service of the film. And there's just that 1% of thing that you can hear that's like, that, that's a Desplat move. Um, and to me, what that is, is this little churning, cyclical, almost minimalist, but with a high degree of detail and filigree to them. Like the, a lot of uh, the score reminded me of a kind of very alternate universe, brighter imitation game, especially the, the, the cute Joe writes. And I, I think that that's uh, to me is what's special about the score is that it's a, a craftsperson working at their best, but also it sounds true to the film. It's not, uh, it's not in any way a, a spinoff of other work. Let's talk about our third entry uh, for Marriage Story, Randy Newman. no way the score is going to win but i want it to so badly <laughs> say more Louis. what it, is it about you like i i just i'm so it's such a perfect choice to have randy newman score this movie because his music especially his 
ballads, his chamber music, it will break your heart in the most specific way possible. There's something truly tragic about a Randy Newman song because it's so specifically full of him and full of heart and full of his own specificity. And that's what this movie did to me so effectively is that it will break your heart in a very specific and, and charming way uh, because it's about the specific story of these, of this relationship. It has to be specific. And I think there's something uh, R- Randy Newman has such a remarkable way of, of talking about melodrama and big ideas and, and, that, and that's, kind of cliche ideas, but then making you totally aware that you are hearing it through the filter, the very specific filter of Randy Newman's sense of humor or his lightness or his charm. I just, I I think it's so perfect, but there's no way it will win. So that's my, that, that, that's my two cents. I see that for me, what I was going into watching this film, I was like getting ready for like melodrama, just like doused in melodrama. What I received was extremely nuanced characters, like devoid of that melodrama. Like I, I was so ready just to be like rolling my eyes at Adam Driver, just doing Adam Driver again. But that character is written so beautifully. And so I feel like the score is just beautiful and just wrenching, but it adds a drama that I don't think the movie needs. Or, or, or that the movie was was without that was without that drama. There was just such realistic and just poignant moments there of of good space, of just outstanding, just dialogue, and just such a a, a well crafted movie. I don't I, I, for some reason I don't know why this uh, Randy Newman. I mean, he just can just do everything, but for me. Like I don't know, it didn't. It didn't all connect for me. Just as a as as a as a fan going to the movies to seeing it once, um, but as a, as standalone, like the work that we just heard. I mean, it's just like yeah, masterclass. I don't think anyone's going to walk out of that movie thinking about the music. Let's put it that way. Yeah. No, no one's going to say, "Oh my God, that music killed me." They're going to talk about the performances and the writing and and yeah. and the the emotional nuance of the film. But I think that that's Randy Newman's particular secret weapon in a movie like this is that he can get, get you into the performances and then kind of disappear, but then poke his head out a little bit and say like, this movie's a little bit more specific than just a melodrama. There's something more particular about the characters that that's what I agree with you. Yeah. I hear you. If I can chime in, um, I, I too love the music. Um, I agree with pretty much everything that's been said about how much you notice the music in this film. I agree that it's in a way the subtlest, which is a segue into what I wanted to say, which is, I mean, it's a good year for Randy Newman. He's up for both best song and best score. And between the two, I think this is the more exceptional music. The knock on Randy Newman, this has been a knock on him for decades, is that Randy Newman, when he's doing his typical pop song mode, has a, a mode that he traffics in it's it's kind of a certain sort of slap happy piano pop song think of everything from you know short people to i don't know i love la and yet he's also capable of something like this he's capable of of very subtle beautiful music and the fact that randy newman is kind of a quintessential la 
uh, composer and the, the plot of this movie has to do with, you know, the Adam Driver character having to move to LA and, you know, the back and forth between the two coasts. I think that works at a meta level and uh, the music's just really beautiful. The interesting trivia in this category is that there are two cousins competing with each other, the Newmans. Randy Newman is up for Marriage Story and Thomas Newman is up for 1917. And I believe Thomas Newman has won in this category before, so. Let's play a little bit of the 1917 score that, yes, by Thomas Newman. Yeah, to me, this is a quintessential Thomas Newman score. It's got a um, all the telltale signs that he did it. It's incredibly textural in a kind of ambient way, but there's a, always one or two instruments that are expressing these um, minimalist cells of ideas that uh, that basically his genius, in my opinion, is that he's able to create a very, very, very simple thing and repeat it and have that be the entire hook for the cue. He has a very, very minimalist, but in a kind of very expressive sense of the word, minimalist idea. He, he kind of has this way of getting to the core of the idea and playing it, and then that's, that's what you get. And I think that's very effective for a movie like this because I think most of the cues are going to be felt and not heard because of the style of filmmaking and because of the story, it's, there's something more visceral, there's something more immediate than it is a kind of, it's, it's not a heady musical experience. It's a very bodily one. Um, I'm gonna correct myself because I just looked something up. Thomas Newman has never won this category. So this would be interesting if by some chance he were to win. And by the way, 1917, in the other categories it's nominated in, has the best momentum of any Oscar nominee. It came out the latest in the year, and some people are saying it might wind up taking Best Picture in an upset. I don't know if you consider it an upset, but it's a big hit. And if Thomas Newman got swept in with other prizes that 1917 wins, then it's possible that this could be the one that finally wins it for him. But um, if I'm reading this right, he's been nominated something like a dozen times and has never won in this category. So unlike his cousin Randy, this would be a first for him. I share Louis' opinions about the music. I think uh, the ambient nature of it, it's, it felt like American Beauty to me. It felt like any yeah. number of things that I've heard Thomas Newman do before. I suppose that's both a blessing and a curse. I wouldn't say it's exceptionally different from anything he's done before, but it's very effective. Right, and I think the American Beauty tie-in is a smart one too because it's Sam Mendes. They've collaborated before, uh, and, and it's, it's very, I think it shows... Thomas Newman's talent that he can take. When I heard the, uh, uh, there's a, another score called Gehenna and the piano part in it has this very typical Thomas Newman. Is it major? Is it minor? Is it both at the same time that you also hear in American Beauty? He, he clearly has a very established and codified sound. And I th sounds like Mendez let him do that. Uh, to great effect. I mean, I think that, 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 that 
theirs is a very successful partnership. But it certainly is a Thomas Newman score. Yeah. Yeah, they've worked together, Mendez and Newman, on Road to Perdition. They've worked together on a James Bond movie, Skyfall. They, they, they keep working together. So, you know, it makes right. sense that he would go with Newman again for 1917. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the last film in the category, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. We see John Williams. Yeah, the up-and-comer John Williams. <laughs> I hear good things about this kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's, let's, let's give him a listen. Yeah, the, the question about this film and will it win the best score is really a question of, of how much is this going to be a, a recognition of John Williams' contributions to, with Star Wars to you know, film history. He's already, he won the episode four and then nothing since then, I believe, uh, for Star Wars. He's been nominated so many times and has won a fraction of those times. The, the question with John Williams it, within the, this award is, do people understand truly how, how important and how great he is? Or is it kind of like he's the air that we breathe and so we kind of take him for granted a little bit? Uh, the question is about, are people going to recognize take this as an occasion to recognize his contributions as a whole. Uh, this being kind of the end of the Star Wars, the true Star Wars saga, and there will be infinite offshoots, I'm sure. But, and to me, the, the score is so successful because this franchise is so successful because it, it really understands how to tie in the, the music from the previous films and to add new material. Whether or not people like the new material, that's, a, that's up for debate. I know a lot of people have various opinions on, on how well he adds to his body of work within the Star Wars canon. But it's really an additive journey. Uh, and it's, it's a very referential process where he's constantly referencing the things that came before. And so it's, it's a, when, we, when we ask, is John Williams going to win? It's so much bigger than, is this the best score? Uh, it's a huge cultural conversation about like uh, his contributions and, and, and about Star Wars's place in, in culture in, in general. Uh, my guess is that he has a 51% chance of winning this. I'd give Hilder Gudnadotter 48.5 chance and Despla 0.5. Did that math come out correct? <laughs> that's, that's, that'd be I love my it. guess. I love that's, it. That's great. Yeah, I would say I, I don't have much to add uh, to Louis' brilliant uh, analysis other than to say that, yeah, John Williams at this point, thinking at a meta level about the Oscars, has what you would call a Meryl Streep problem, if you could call it a problem. Meryl Streep, you know, nominated something like 20 times, yet there was this long gap where between, I think it was Sophie's Choice and The Iron Lady, she hadn't actually won anymore. Tom Hanks has a similar problem. He won twice in a row in the 90s, and he hasn't won since, and he frequently doesn't even get nominated it anymore so like these people who are sort of oxygen for hollywood and just taken enormously for granted 
eventually, the, you know, the Oscar campaign centers on, you know, we can actually give him the prize occasionally. And yeah, I agree with everything about the, particularly the additive nature of John Williams's score. The fact that, you know, if you think about Star Wars, there's like at least two pieces of music, the, the Imperial March and the, you know, opening fanfare that are possibly two of the most famous pieces of movie score of the last century. Um, and then on top of that, he's got to both reference those, call back to those, and then add to them in each of these nine movies. And he, he does a brilliant job with it every time. So yeah, yeah. Could, could this be the final time that he he gets nominated and uh, not, not to treat an Oscar like a gold watch, you know, at retirement, but, you know, we don't know how many more times he's going to be at this podium. Maybe now's the time to give him one more. I don't know. I think you're totally right. I mean, one of the ways that I think about Star Wars is that it is a visual score for a piece of music. It, it really is like, and maybe that's just because I'm, uh, I'm the music dork that I am. I, you go, in my opinion, you go to Star Wars and the music is telling you the story and the visuals are basically there to uh, visually describe the music. It, 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 to me, it does feel like uh, if you, it's impossible to imagine what it, what it would be like without it, but Star Wars is essentially, to me, a piece of programmatic music that happens to have a movie attached to it. That's beautifully put. <laughs> Well, those are our nominees for original score. What films have you guys heard this year that did not make the list, but perhaps should have been recognized? I was really upset that Michael Abel's Us didn't get nominated. I think definitely it was the most inventive, coolest score of, uh, of 2019. The movie is phenomenal, but there's some really, really amazing things going on in that score. From the reference to the loonies, I got five on it. I got five on it, yeah. Yeah, it's like all the way through the score, and it, it has really, really uh, organic roots in the the bones of the score you can't separate it out and from a storytelling perspective it really really enriches that that the parts of the movie where where that that song kind of comes back in in big ways i think that he's tremendously underappreciated michael abels i think that he is one of the most inventive one of the cooler textural technical orchestral writers today and his the production chops in that score with the electronic music elements uh i i think it's there's nothing really that that got me as excited about movie music as that score did i was very upset to see that it wasn't on the list big cosign on that one um as a pop fan who remembers i got five in it by loonies the fact that in interviews jordan peele said he basically the loonies song almost started as like the seat of the entire movie um and that effectively able like grew the score out of that pop song and effectively deconstructed that pop song. Like it's, it's built on this interesting sample that dates back to the eighties called why you treat me so bad by club nouveau that had orchestral elements in it back then. And then was recontextualized as a hip hop song in 1994. And then that was blown up into this entire score. So yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Michael Abel, I, I think he 
the, the tie-in between what you're talking about, the, the sample nature of the pop song, and there's exactly. a kind of multi-generational component to the horror in us. I, it's so smart. And, and I, I can't think of another composer who's engaging with the story in that way other than Michael Abel. I, I just, I think it's, it's so good and it should, it should have been nominated and it should have won. I don't know if you're talking about this in your other episode, Skid, but the fact is us got, you know, uh, forgotten uh, unfairly pretty much across the board. Lupita Nyong'o was not nominated for yeah. Best Actress, you know, so I just think it went down with the movie, unfortunately, which is a pity because it was a, a blockbuster hit and one that unfortunately came out early in the year and people forgot about it. But yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah, the process of films, particularly films that do come out early in the year and you obviously can't maintain momentum through nine months when all these other movies are coming out in such shorter periods. But uh, I think it's as much about strategy and politicking and uh, marketing, I, unfortunately. And uh, yeah, I think that us has uh, a lot in a lot of areas, excellent elements of the film that are not getting recognized. It is too bad. Well, that's a big one, guys. Is there anything else slipping around in there that uh, is still in your brain? Yeah, no, I, I nothing else slipped to mind. Um, most of the other nominees seemed pretty, now, I don't want to say predictable, but they were telegraphed, you know, some weeks, months earlier. I'm trying to think if there were any other Best Picture nominees that had exceptional score. Right. Well, that's, that's the other question, too, is I think in this world, there are a lot of scores that get recognized because they're so outstanding, but they might not necessarily be in the running for what people consider to be the best movies of the year. Uh, and so... That, that's a big question around awards time is, you know, how much is the strength of, of the film as a whole contributing to, to it's the recognition of the music inside it. And, and, and they, they go part and parcel because the, the music is what helps the film become great and, and vice versa. But, you know, I, th- I think that, I think you're right in the world of best picture and then the music that accompanies it. I think that this, seems like it's pretty much a, a pretty representative category. Well, thanks guys for coming on to talk about it today. Much appreciated. It was a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah, thank thanks. you. Thank you so much for having yeah, me. Yeah, it was really fun. Thank you. Listeners, I welcome your feedback. You can email skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-Z. If you visit us on iTunes, please leave a rating and a comment. It really helps us reach new listeners. And if you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. Finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Listeners, thanks for following us. More Oscar nominee discussions ahead, so join us again soon.